Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 30 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so pleased to have on the show with me today, Mr. Dave Stahoviak. I personally have gained so much over the years from Dave's podcast, Coaching for Leaders, and the knowledge he has shared personally on coaching, leadership, development and behaviour change. Dave has had a successful career supporting leaders while at Dale Carnegie, and now through his own Leadership Academy. Dave helps leaders discover practical wisdom, build meaningful relationships, and create movement for genuine results. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show today, Dave. Let's get into the episode. Brad, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. Dave, I'm really keen personally to understand what led you into leadership and leadership development. Well, um, realizing that I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was yeah. what led me to this initially. Um, so the story goes back probably 20, 25 years to being in college. And it, there were two things that happened at that time that kind of got me down this path of thinking more about leadership. Um, and both were failures. One of them was I was like a lot of college students balancing a lot, working part-time, taking challenging courses, um, doing extracurricular activities. And I hit a point where I was just completely overwhelmed, where I was doing assignments last minute, where I was dropping the ball on things that I really shouldn't have been dropping the ball on. And I got, uh, I shared with the person I worked with at the time, uh, my boss, you know, some of the challenges I was having. And she said, you know, you have this friend who's doing this new thing called coaching. And maybe you should work with her and get some help, have her help get you some perspective um, and thinking about taking the next step and things you might change as far as your scheduling and your productivity and just how you're thinking about what you do and what you say no to and all that. And I was sort of desperate at the time. I was really stressed out. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll try it. And, um, and I got to work with her six months or a year. And it really made a big difference on how I thought about time management, scheduling, and I made better decisions. And I thought, wow, it's incredible how much the perspective from someone else and mentoring and coaching can really make a difference for a person. The other thing that happened is I was a manager for the first time when I was in college. I had this big job for the orientation program on the university where I supervised almost 40 other students. And that's that's a that was a big jump from never having done it to here of 19, 20 years old, supervising all these students. And uh, it went okay, mostly, but we got to the end of the, uh, of the project that we were working on. And thankfully, the person I work for, same person actually, uh, did this process of soliciting feedback and sharing feedback. And part of the process of working for her was to sit down and talk about what you did well and what you didn't. And it was my first performance review, really. And, um, and I recall very vividly people having shared in their feedback to her that I did not do a good job of giving feedback and confronting and um, challenging people. I remember, I remember so vividly one of uh, my employees at the time had, I don't know if it was written or stated, I can't remember anymore, but he said, Dave needs to get a backbone. That was like the key message. And I was, in retrospect, I was kind of a mediocre leader at best and didn't really step into conflict well, didn't handle things well when they came up proactively. And so I found myself searching for how could I do better? And so those two struggles with leadership early on and just my own personal leadership really led me to 
wanting to get better and trying to find out resources and books and people I listen to that would actually help me to, to get better as a leader. I can relate to that so much, but it's, it's this having that challenge in that challenging time. Like that's when I first discovered your podcast, same story, but then you've, what you spoke about was really this constant learning. Like, would you call yourself a constant learner from that time? Did that trigger you to go down this path of just study in this aspect of leadership and coaching? Well, I'd love to tell you, yes. (laughs) But the truth is, is I really don't like learning that much at all. Even today, um, I like, I think, I think about this, my work with our Academy members, I think when we say, a lot of us, I like learning. What we what we mean is we like sourcing ideas and collecting knowledge and collecting information and reading books and listening to podcasts and watching TED Talks and the things that are the fun parts of quote unquote learning. Real learning though is about behavior change. And that is hard. And I do not like it. So I recognize the importance of it now, and I have disciplined myself to be better at it today than I was yesterday, and hopefully tomorrow I'll be still better at it than I am now. But I wouldn't, I would describe myself as someone who has always had an eye toward new ideas and knowledge and been really excited about that, but has struggled and continues to struggle with behavior change. And, um, and we may get into this a bit. But I've, I've definitely found some things that work better around behavior change, but I do find it still a daily struggle. It's, it's not easy, is it? No. <laughs> and it shouldn't be. And, and if it was, and I'm sort of glad it isn't easy because it means that um, if you appreciate it more, I appreciate the skills I have today more than I think that I would if they had come naturally to me, a lot of the things I get to teach and talk about on the podcast that I'm better at now, I'm better at because I've really struggled through a lot of it. And I, and I think I'm a better host and I'm a better resource to other leaders because it, most of the things that people tell me I'm good at, that's helpful to them. I look back and I think, wow, those aren't things that came naturally to me. And so the, the struggle with it, I think in some way has been helpful to be able to hopefully help others a bit more. Yeah. And you've had this reward along the way where you can look back and go, wow, some of the things I'm now being credited for were actually I'd call weaknesses in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, I'm, I'm, and it's surprising to me. I mean, personally looking back of thinking just my journey, but it's also, um, it's also made it easier for me now to like put forth the time and the energy to do behavior change because I've seen the benefits of it over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, with it, you've, so you've, you're in this phase of gaining insights and I love how you put that because I've heard that term before. I don't know where it came from the knowing doing gap, you know, the fact we can know something, but -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that we will do something. And I think it was a Harvard book or Harvard professor that wrote on that. So Dave, yeah. what was it that triggered you to understand that and then start to explore further down this path of, of behavior and behavior change and how to actually enable that? Well, the thing that probably triggered it most for me was working at Dale Carnegie for 15 years and especially the first few years of working at Carnegie. And I really realized the distinction between knowledge and reading a book, reading an article, going to a conference and collecting a lot of information and then behavior change. And that got, that got um, thrown at me really fast at Carnegie because Carnegie is all about behavior change. If you take a Dale Carnegie course uh, or you teach it as I had the privilege to do as well, 95% of the course is focused on behavior change and not the knowledge in the material. That's important. And that's a foundation for everything Carnegie does. 
but the the effort was on how do we have people actually go out into the workplace and in their personal life and use what it is that they have started to obtain knowledge about. And it was the first time that I'd really been in, in an environment, in a learning environment, where that the focus was so much on behavior change and, and not as much on knowledge acquisition. And, and by the way, I say this, I'm not attempting to discount the value of knowledge acquisition and all the things that many people who listen to this episode, Brad, are doing, and you and I do a lot, which is reading books and listening to the podcasts and going to conferences, all that's really, really important. It's just that it's insufficient alone. So the two together are, are really important, but I just never been, I'd never been in an environment where so much of the time was focused on behavior change. Mostly it had been knowledge and more formal learning environments. And so seeing not only that emphasized so, so well at Carnegie, but also more importantly, seeing how much of a difference it made in people's lives and in their work, they'd come back to our classroom between sessions and tell these incredible stories of how they changed relationships with family members and with coworkers and opened up opportunities in their careers that they would have probably not done on their own without the, you know, the, the framework. And it was it was so remarkable to see how many iterations of that over the over the years. And I I shifted over that time to really realize and appreciate the value of being able to do both and really have learning encapsulate all of that behavior. What an opportunity that was, Dave. Like so much of a consulting or consulting or a approach to help a business is in training. But from early yeah. on with Dale Carnegie, you got this approach, well, ultimately what gives the results is behavior change. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. Um, it, it, was, it was a wonderful gift to me and it was a wonderful gift to the people I got to work with. And so getting surrounded by that for such a long time in my career and seeing that every single day, you know, clients used to tell me like how grateful they were for the courses work from Carney Brock. And I would think like, wow, I'm so grateful too. <laughs> like I get to be surrounded by this all the time and reminded about it and challenged by it every single day. And that was hugely valuable to me. I would not be doing what I'm doing today without Carnegie. No way. Um, it was super helpful on me to be able to change, not only change my own behavior, but to recognize the frameworks to do that well. Yeah. Dave, I've got a personal question for you because I know you're doing so much more now with your academy to really help leaders, you know, enact behavior change and really get gains for themselves and others. Did the history in the podcast and a lot of the guests you've spoken to and the things, insights you've gained and then obviously worked on, did that lead help you in formulating what you're doing now and the whole focus on the academy and behavior change? Yes. And like, like Carnegie, the Academy is very much focused on behavior change. And the reason that I've made that intentional shift is because so many of the formal learning and, tr- and training programs and academic programs are so heavily built on the knowledge acquisition piece of learning, uh, which again, really important, right? And most everyone who comes into our academy has done a ton of that. Uh, something like almost 60% of our audience has graduate degrees. Um, many of them have gone through training programs. They've read books. They are people like you and me who are learners and seekers and are always looking for, you know, what can I do to better myself? And so it's, so I've really intentionally shifted the work we do in our academy cohorts to be, okay, let's take that as a given that we've all got access to really good knowledge ideas. Um, There's plenty of podcasts I can point people to if we really do need to dive in on a model or resource. We spend our time talking about and setting ourselves up for the behavior change piece and the accountability. And how do I set up a commitment that means that, that I shift my behavior over 90 days? And really do something differently for myself and for the people I serve and for my organization. And our 
our whole process is built around that. And, and even to the point where I, I think, I think we learn and we're most likely to shift our behavior when we are struggling with something. And that's why I don't do case studies. Like in our academy cohorts, we don't, we don't, people have plenty of problems without me having to manufacture any, right? <laughs> so rather than, rather than creating case studies, um, we bring the problems everyone's dealing with. And so that means that there's not a set curriculum, uh, a, a formal curriculum, there's a lot of structure. But the curriculum is built around what is happening today for each person. What are we struggling with? Because that's the time that we're going to shift behavior the most is when we're struggling with something when it's not working. And then we learn to adjust our behavior to do something that is going to work better. So that's been the way that I and we have approached the academy for years now of really putting the time and intensity intensity there. And again, not that the knowledge piece isn't important. It's just that people have done so much of that that I want to really bring along the second part, which is, okay, we know all these things. Now, how do we actually put them into practice and do them with consistency? Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing approach, Doug. I can really see with that focus on the problems, the emotional motivations there, that emotional piece is in play. So you've got one of those core ingredients to actually then help coach and lead to behavior change. But Dave, if you would talk us through it, what would you say the key aspects are in achieving leadership behavior change? What would you say are the core elements of that and some of the core approaches that you, you do? Yeah. People you're working with. Yeah. It, it's, um, it, it's two things primarily. So first and foremost, it's creating a picture of what success looks like. And I think about it is, um, and Brad, you've worked in manufacturing in, in your career. Um, I had the privilege at Carnegie to work for or organizations that were doing tons of manufacturing and building and it's incredible uh, incredible technology. And I remember at, uh, at Carnegie, I got to serve people who would make fighter jets here in Southern California. And you'd go on the production line and you'd see like the trucks would pull up to one side of the building and all the, all the crates would come with the supplies and the, the raw materials. And then outside the other end of the, the building would pop half of an airplane. <laughs> it was yeah. really remarkable, like how much is involved in that process. Yeah. And the, and there were two key parts of it. It's super complicated. So I'm, I'm vastly oversimplifying, but uh, one was the plan, the blueprint for what it needed to look like. And then secondly, was actually putting it together. And that's not unlike the way I work with people and encourage them to, to, to do to move forward. So first and foremost is creating the blueprint. What do we want this to look like when we're done? And so the first invitation I make when I'm working with someone in our academy cohorts is let's create a blueprint of what two to three years looks like. So the best we can, let's outline what does your role look like? What kind of behaviors are you doing as a leader? What, does, what are people saying about you when you've done that? Uh, what kind of results have you re- achieved? And also, what does it look like personally and with family? And so we get as clear as we can on creating a blueprint of what the future looks like, just like you would if you were building anything, a house, an airplane, anything. And then that's the, so that's the big piece. And then step two is, okay, how do you actually create it? And the, the answer in every manufacturing process is one step at a time, right? You get, you don't try to build the entire thing all at once. You have different parts of the production line that do one particular thing and do it well. And so once we have a framework of what the end result looks like, then we break it down into an academy. We do something we call commitment. It's 90 days. And in 90 days, we zero in on one thing, one behavior change. Now, this is, this is probably the hardest part for the people I work with, Brad, and it's the hardest part for me because you know the kind of people who want to get better at leadership are smart people who have had a lot of success in their career, many of them, at least the people who come and listen to, to, to our show. And they've had really good success doing a lot of things at once. And behavior change doesn't work so well that way. Uh, 
trying to do lots of different things at once, trying to change lots of behaviors at once does not tend to work well. It's possible, but it's just really hard. And so I am, I spend the most coaching I do is asking people to do less and focus on one thing at a time. So the commitment for 90 days is change one behavior, not two, not six, one. And what's the daily action you can take five to 10 minutes a day to improve, to do a action that is going to ultimately contribute to that behavior and that skill getting better. And that's really hard. It's hard because it's simple. And it's really easy to get busy and to talk yourself out of it, not do that five minutes, but it really comes down to that from a behavior change standpoint. And if you're able to discipline yourself to do things one at a time, then you start to fill in the blueprint over time. And by the way, it changes, right? Like any blueprint of building a house, building a plane, as you go along, you end up making adjustments, which is normal. But if but you don't try to build everything at once. And so that's, that's really, I think, the hardest part is getting a framework of the, biggest, the big picture, but then getting it down to one part and for 90 days focusing on, I'm going to build the wall on this room. And I'm going to get that down pretty well first before I try to build the second story, right? And so, that, so it's, it's thinking big and then it's getting really tactical on how do I take a daily action to change my behavior so I get better at this. Yeah, that's, that's neat. So you got to build the blueprint, prioritize and focus on the one behavior at a time, and then commit to actions daily to move yeah. towards it. Dave, what's your thoughts on um, why the, that focus on the one behavior at a time really works versus really going hard at it and trying to look at heaps of behaviors? You got any theories behind that that you'd think, I think it comes down to these elements? It's so counterintuitive. I mean, it really is. Um, and, and this is where Carnegie changed my mind on this because I used to be of the opinion that, well, if I'm going to try to get better at something, improve my skills, I should probably try to work on a lot of things all at once. I should be taking multiple classes. I should be reading as many books as I can do. Um, I should, uh, you know, try to be a part of as many organizations as I can be that are going to support me professionally. And Carnegie changed my mind on that because I would see people come to Carnegie courses and, and, and Carnegie, I don't know where Carnegie decided this or, or figured this out, but he was brilliant in that when he started the courses, he would, people would learn a skill like using people's names, smiling, um, uh, listening when other people are talking. I mean, things that, that almost everyone knows and recognizes as good human relations skills, but most people don't do them consistently. And so yeah. we'd, we'd remind people those skills in the class, and then we would make the invitation because this is, was Carnegie's framework for them. Go out into your personal life in the workplace over the next week and make a commitment to do one thing with one person. And so people would go and do that. And generally, they'd come back having done either one of two things. Some people would do that, and they would find one person, one situation, and they would attempt to apply the skill there. And some people would try to do it everywhere, which is where my thinking was initially. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to do it everywhere, right? Like, if I'm going to use people's names, like, I should do that in every interaction. The people who would come back and who tried to do it everywhere would most of the time not have gotten a lot of traction. And the people would come back who made a specific commitment to try it in one situation in one scenario would have a much, would be much more likely to have not only done it, but then curiously replicated it in other places. They'd start to see opportunities for it to come up in other interactions. And the person who made the commitment to do it in one place would come back and they'd have this incredible story to share with us over the next two, three weeks of how they've gotten better at the skill. And the person who was trying to do it everywhere with everybody and trying every skill would oftentimes be the person who would falter. And Brad, it happened so many times that eventually I was like, well, <laughs> clearly I was wrong at how I was approaching this. Yeah. And Garnaby yeah. was right in that there's something about getting focused on one thing at a time. 
And it's not to say the rest of the world becomes unimportant or there's nothing else you can think about, but the power of focus and being intentional about doing something differently and taking it one at a time. I don't know all the biology and the neurology behind it, but it really is powerful in being able to advance. And then, you know, as you get better at that, then taking on the next thing, you know, sequentially, but not trying to do everything at once. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Like Dale Carnegie, I've read all his books. So I, I can mm-hmm. say, Dave, I've, I've got the insights from Dale yeah. Carnegie. And the thing I've always found with Dale Carnegie is just the level of base human logic and respect and humility. And it was, he seemed to be insanely humanistic in his approach when he was looking at things and then applying it to businesses. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and, and sometimes people criticize his books. And I've heard it over the years too, of like, well, you know, you could use those tools to manipulate people. And my response to that was always, well, of course you could <laughs> like anything in life. Right. So the, it's about the intention behind it. You know, you can use any, almost any leadership skill, influence skill, presentation skill, you name it, the things you and I talk about on, on our, our shows all the time. Any of those could be used for evil if you're not doing it with the heart and intention behind it. And so um, going along with all that comes the heart, the desire to want to serve others well, to better oneself, to be humble, many of the things that, you know, we all sort of know intuitively, but it really, we really want to do as much as we can in practice so that the heart is in the right place for Yeah. So the motivation of someone is really integral to the outcomes that they'll get. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, neat. Dave, with all this work you're doing on um, coaching leaders and sharing insights to leaders and also shifting behavior change, it's amazing. What's your vision for the future with this? Where are you taking things into the future now? Yeah, uh, my, my purpose and my why stays the same, which is helping leaders get better through conversations. That is something I do on the podcast. That is something we do within our community. Academy cohorts are all about that. Um, And I've always been a big believer in the power of conversation and helping to surface insights and helping us all to get better. And so my work continues to be focused around that. What I am working on now and in the future is how do I help that to get even better in an online world? And we have all been through this experience with COVID in various forms and you know, around the world over the last year or so. And it has certainly challenged us in lots of new ways, but it's also opened up doors to do things differently virtually. And, um, and we're all learning. Uh, I'm, I'm learning. How do we yeah. do as, it, not necessarily the same way, because what we do in a virtual environment will, I hope, never replace what we do in person. I think those both are really valuable. They are, there are really good use cases for both. And I hope we never eliminate in-person conferences, events, meetings. But I do hope, and, and COVID has forced us all to do this, to be more intentional about what, what's the right medium in the venue for time, cost, all those things. And what... What most of us have not figured out yet is how do we do that really well online to create community, to create a, a relationships, to create connection. And I, I feel like I've made some strides on that in the last year through our community membership and through um, new events we've been offering in our work. Um, but I think that's very much still early days. Um, in, and so my vision for the future is you know, two to three years from now, I'd love to see that for our community, our listeners, even being more organic, um, where location becomes um, less important for us learning together and having conversations and doing work together. And, um, and, and I'm thinking a lot about that right now. Of, I, I know what that looks like in a perfect world. You've got and your blueprint. Like example, yeah, I've got, I know what the blueprint looks like, I think. Um, now it's, okay, what are the steps in order to get there to really create more of that? So it's really organic. And some of that's still fuzzy. And so I, I'm doing a lot of, uh, in fact, just this week, 
doing surveys with our members and trying to figure out like, what do we do next on this? How does this look better? And that is going to be really interesting over the next couple of years uh, as that comes together. But it's still very much tied to the same purpose, which is helping people get better through conversations. Wow, Dave, that's, that's brilliant because I can really see as you improve in that area and develop, people from all over the world can take advantage of what you do and the academy and the insights. Dave, I've been myself focused a lot on the human bond side. Like the, the challenge my mind is on is how do we create that human bond virtually that you create in person? So I'd, I'd love to share knowledge both ways and see what over time because to me, there's so many benefits to virtual. But the, the frontier is the human bond. How do we create a high-quality human bond virtually if we can't get together and shake hands? And, but, and I don't think it's impossible either. I think, I think the answers are there. I think traditionally, but Dave, we, we just weren't trying it really. COVID sort of forced it, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And I, I've learned a lot in the last few years on, on getting better at that. And I... I am really excited about what technology and what um, the framework will allow us to do going forward. And I also, and part of it too, I mean, this is going to sound odd maybe. Um, I've been working mostly virtual for eight, nine years now. And so even before COVID, that was a large part of my work is working on Zoom and video conferencing. And so part of the part of the stopping point for doing more with that was just that that wasn't the accepted norm. And today it is. I mean, and that shifted really quickly. And we all knew that was going to happen, but we didn't know how fast it was going to happen and that this huge event worldwide was going to force us all. And so that's been really interesting with all the challenges that have come with that. It's also, in some ways, I've seen some new opportunities come up for our members and collaboration and absolutely have seen more people do things online in the last year or so um, that I think in the long run, once we're past all the mess that COVID has created, or at least, you know, past much of it, I think that us having all been forced to go down this road is going to help us to get there quicker and also help us to really be able to benefit a lot from doing things online and, and this medium. Yeah, that's, that's great insight. And you're so fortunate, Dave, to have been playing in this space for the last eight, nine years. Like that's, cause I'm sure you've been playing with that whole piece of how do we create bond and connection virtually. I, I listening to your podcasts and knowing you through that medium for so long, I'm sure that's been a big focus. Yeah, it has been. And um, in, it's, it's, I've been, it's been really an interesting journey for me and for all of us going through this. And so my personal workflow hasn't changed very much during this time as far as that and medium and working. Um, but what is really different is everyone's around me has. And so both family, friends, um, colleagues uh, uh, and our, our listeners and our members have had a huge shift in that. And so I've, um, I've really been challenged in new ways of thinking, like, how do I help having been doing it longer, which does not necessarily mean better, but just longer. Um, how do I help people to learn? And also, how do I help have empathy for making that shift? Because I went through that shift, but it's been eight years now. Um, of like, what is it like to do meetings all online and by video and, uh, and getting used to that? I, we were just talking to a few of our members the other day, like what it's like, like being on Zoom most of the day versus in-person meetings and how there's something about the energy in your brain where you get to the end of the day and you're just like done and fried, which I, I do get in in-person meetings too, but there is something different. Like it's definitely a different part of your brain and just the visual and and the screens and all that with Zoom. And uh, the first six months I did a lot on Zoom, I was, I was exhausted at the end of the day. And uh, I remember I'd go to sleep and I'd just be dead tired. And then something happened like six, eight, nine months in where that started to shift. And I, don't, and, uh, I can't explain it. I don't know the biology behind it, but, it, um, but 
remembering that now and, and, and hopefully supporting others who are doing that for the first time to, to, um, you know, to stay with it and to find good practices to work better online. I, I think it's a good skill set for all of us to learn how to get better. Dave, I'm so glad that it does change. I haven't hit yeah. that point yet. So <laughs> hopefully it comes soon. It does. It, it just, and, and I think for some people it also doesn't. And that's, and well, and I think that this is something that um, from a leadership standpoint, we all need to be really cognizant of, and I know I do, is I have a lot of privilege. I get to work from home. I have a separate room where our kids are not likely to run into. Um, I can close the door. Um, I have uh, the kind of work that I don't have to go somewhere physically. Not everyone has that. And so we've seen this really interesting um, and shift now where, and in fact, we were just talking about this too. Like it used to be that if you were a virtual employee in a lot of organizations, you were a second-class citizen. Yeah. And now we've, we've almost made the shift to the opposite. The people who need to be on, um, in, uh, located physically in some cases are not only in conditions that are less safe, but are also being left out of conversations. We just had this conversation with an academy member this week who, um, you know, everyone's on the meetings virtually, but the people who are actually physically at the office are sometimes being left out of the virtual meetings where the decisions are actually being made, which is so ironic when you think about it, like how we've shifted on that in the last year in a lot of organizations. But it's also something for us really to be mindful of a leader from a leadership standpoint of how do we make sure to involve everyone in in, in conversations, and how do we make sure to be um, uh, conscious of the fact that childcare issues are a huge struggle in a lot of places right now? School is a huge struggle. Um, uh, you know, working parents is a huge obstacle. It's a huge obstacle for Bonnie and I, and we have every possible privilege and setup that would work great for the situation. And yet, every day. This morning, we were coordinating schedules, like how are we going to handle this with kids because they're off school this week and all this stuff. Um, and I, I think about like being a single parent and all the other things that, that are in people's lives and, and real struggles, how I would navigate that. And I don't even know where I'd start on some of that. And so I think that that's also really important for us to be, be all conscious of. This is mostly just me talking to myself, Brad. I appreciate you allowing me to just like talk to myself during this episode. <laughs> Remind me of the things I should know. But Dave, they're such pertinent topics. Like you and I didn't plan this topic, you know, no, leading into this no. podcast. But I think for people to hear this topic is so important. And the key word I heard you say there was empathy. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's so easy. I mean, it's, it's easy. We're human beings, right? So it's easy for us to know like what's going on with us <laughs> and thinking about ourselves. Uh, the hard part is stopping and really taking the time to examine. I have, uh, you know, the employee that we have who's a single parent who's struggling with childcare, who doesn't want to turn on video for their Zoom meeting, not because they're trying to not make eye contact and be present, but because there's a mess in the background from their kids and they're running around and they don't want people to see that and they don't want to bother uh, people with it. And, and, and that's a real, I think I what I mean, the video things, one interesting thing I've seen come up a lot is some organizations have made a blanket policy of like, you need to be online. You need to be on video um, for everything and not, and, and, and I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad policy, but I think it, sometimes there's not the, also the consideration of, what if people are not being on video for other reasons other than they just don't want to be present or, or connect? Um, I don't think most people actually make that choice. I think a lot of times if people aren't being on video or making that choice, there's oftentimes something bigger behind that. And I think taking the time to stop and it just at least consider that, even if you do still have a policy or even if you do make a decision, to uh, consider some of the empathy behind that I think is really um, I think it's, it's, it's an important reminder for all of us to take the time to do that. Yeah, because I've even seen on that case, it could just be their internet speed. You know, the, oh, yeah. the video just doesn't work for them because it claps out the internet with them. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Dave, I think uh, this is a really key question for, for me to ask you because 
your experience and knowledge and your habits in leadership and leadership coaching are amazing. And I want to know what advice would you give to someone or give to yourself, wind the clock back all those years and you're just going into leadership again, what advice would you have given yourself? Because I'm sure this relates to other people just going into leadership. Yeah. uh, Start. Start. And know that you're going to make mistakes along the way and it's not going to be perfect. And this, I have changed my mind on a lot over the years. Um, A book that was really big for me is a book that's not technically a leadership book. I mean, it is, it's more of a, in the tech space, uh, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fabulous book. It's a great book for entrepreneurs, but it's also a really great book for, I think, uh, anyone in that most of us, I think, me included, grew up in school and, and went to university. And the message was get an A or an A minus. B plus is okay once in a while. Uh, you know, spend the term putting together a great term paper. Spend, um, and, and organizations do this too, you know, spend the time getting the project perfect for the customer. And we have, I think a lot of us, I know I did for a long time, put too much value in, um, in trying to get everything as close to perfect as possible. And as a result, not be willing to engage more in conversation and failure and feedback and learning at regular intervals. And, and, and I've definitely shifted from learning being an event to learning being more of a practice. And the Lean Startup was, was big on that for me. Of um, So now when I think about doing something new, my sort of default setting at this point is let's test it. Let's try something with a small group of people. And, and it probably won't go perfectly. And, uh, and you know, we, we're certainly not aiming for failure, but it's probably not going to be perfect. And let's try it out and see. Let's have a few conversations. Let's do a few test events. And then let's see what people say and what they think we should get better at and what isn't working. And then we iterate on it. And that now the way I approach things more is how can I um, take the next step of what's the next iteration? And then go talk to people and ask for input and ask for feedback. And what are we doing that's not working? And what's one thing we should change in the next interaction point? And almost everything I do now tends to follow that model of it being a practice and it being an ongoing Kaizen, if you will, process of continuous improvement versus me doing what I used to do most of my career, which is like, sit and think of something or work on something with a few people for two or three months before ever talking to someone about it or or rolling it out or getting feedback from a customer. And, um, and I found that to be really different, but I've also, and and valuable, but also that I've had to unlearn a lot of the, you need to turn in work. That's always a plus work. And I I had to unlearn a bunch of that, uh, especially as also running a business (laughs) as an entrepreneur. Um, I've had to, because you don't, there's no way, you, there's no way you'll ever get it um, A's most of the time. So having to unlearn a lot of that and get better at doing lots of small iterations and then kind of seeing how things go and then investing in the things that work and people tell you it's work and then being really apparent about it, like telling people like, hey, we're trying this. And I try to do that with our members and listeners of, hey, we're trying this. Let me know how it goes. Let's talk about it. And, and putting together events where we have conversations. That's been, that's been huge. I think maybe I answered the question. <laughs> you asked no, a question no. related to that. Did I answer it? You did, Dave. You did. And, and it really relates to me too, mate. Like I'm, I do a lot in Agile and Eric's book is mm. like one of the Bibles of that, you know, a lot yeah. of Jeff Sutherland's book on Scrum. But the yeah. thing I find too, like Dave, and I guess you're relating that to me, mate, because a lot of leaders come from that perfection background. They are great. They've achieved well all through their career. They've achieved through uni right way through. Mm-hmm. And then they, you end up in work where the complexity of work and business is so great. Mm-hmm. And what you just described there, that experimental approach, doesn't it take the pressure off too? Because it's like, oh, yeah. we're going we're gonna to test something within a week. And if it doesn't work, but we'll learn from it, 
It's amazing the pressure it just takes off everyone's shoulders. I I think so. Um, And more organizations are are starting to adopt that methodology. And and the tech space is a great example that's done that better. And in a lot of places, that's not still the case. Um, And it just seems like... I'm, I'm sure there will be newer approaches, uh, you know, as time goes on. But it seems like that makes a lot more sense um, than trying to nail it perfectly for the first time. But it's so different than how a lot of us were taught. Oh, totally different, totally. And and that's the part that I've really. I may mean, spend a lot of years in school and following the formal formal structure and writing at one point a dissertation and like I mean. I remember uh, having a conversation with an editor on my dissertation of like the size of dashes in my reference list, like that because the reviewers were going to, there's there, it turns out there's N dashes and M dashes and there's all kinds of different sizes. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, and then to go from there, because we don't, we're good at that. We're good at process. We're good at, at knowledge in higher education. We're not so good in a lot of our higher education settings on the next part of that, of like the behavior change, of the iteration, of the learning as you go. And that is where, um, that's why I think my wife is brilliant in the work she does with students of getting them in real life situations and discussions and practices and practicums and all that. Um, but I, but it, I think for a lot of us, it requires some unlearning and I'm, I'm still, I'm still unlearning that. Yeah, I don't think that ever stops with this one because it's it, for me too. It's counterintuitive and traditionally, traditionally. No. Now, Dave, I've always been keen to ask this question of you because I have a similar question to what you do, and I was inspired by you at the end of my podcast. I always ask something similar to what you do, but what have you learned recently that you didn't know before, Dave? Ah, well, um, I would say two things. One thing I've changed my mind on. And then one thing I'm learning, uh, where I've changed my mind recently is on reading the way this actually relates to what we were just talking about. The way I have often approached reading is I'm going to start the book and I'm going to finish it because if I finish it, I get the little checkbox on Goodreads that I finished the book yeah. and I get to say how at the end of the year, how many books I read um, which I didn't even tell anyone. So it's sort of silly, but like, or like, oh, okay, I read 25 books this year or whatever the number was. And I have changed my mind on that this year. And I stopped tracking what I'm reading and I've stopped using Goodreads. Uh, nothing against Goodreads, by the way, but for me, it just wasn't working. It was too driven on the, on the transaction of reading and not driven enough on the purpose of reading. And it sort of, came front and center to me uh, about a year ago. I was interviewing Susan Rice, who was, worked for President Obama um, as national security advisor in the last administration here in the States. And, um, you know, just an incredible person to get to interview and learn from. And I read 75% of her book, every word. And the last 25% of it, I skimmed because I ran out of time. And I had watched a bunch of interviews she did, and I did my normal prep work. But I realized after interviewing her and coming back to the material afterwards that I missed some things in the last 25% of the book because that was a lot about her experience as national security advisor that I would have liked to ask her about. And I thought, well, this is kind of silly. Why am I having this process of reading everything start to finish and sometimes missing the most important things versus approaching, especially nonfiction reading, approaching it like um, a curator of what do I need? What do I need that's going to be useful to me? So now, I first of all, I've stopped reading. I, 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 should, <laughs> I said the wrong word. I haven't stopped reading. In fact, I'm reading more. Um, I've stopped tracking my reading and the way that I, um, the way that I approach a book now, especially something that I'm going to feature on the show, is I'll pick up the book. I'll start. I'll read the first chapter or so, and then I'll start jumping around, and I'll start looking for what's the message in this book that our audience needs to hear. What's going to be most useful to them? And I spend a little less time on the book, but I get in depth in some very specific things. And then I spend more time looking at other interviews and other work they've done to really surface what's most useful to people and for me. And so I've changed my mind on how I approach reading and I'm reading more books at once. Now I'm probably reading six or seven books right now 
because I'm trying to approach it from a standpoint of what's interesting and what ideas I want to grab and jumping around and also not finishing books because uh, there's no award, <laughs> it turns out, for finishing yeah. a certain number of books um, so that I've, that I've changed my mind on. And I'm, exper- I'm still experimenting with that. Um, the thing that I am learning right now is um, professionally, I'm learning to get my ideas down into notes better. And I've latched onto a system that's become kind of popular in the internet called Zettelkasten, um, which is a note-taking system where you, you know, you get your ideas down, each idea on a note, and then you tag them and have them linked to each other. And, um, you know, you can, you can, you can go down a big rabbit hole on this, but I'm trying to do a real practical version of it for me of when I read books and interview people and highlights of like integrating all those into um, a database of text, basically that makes sense for me to be able to archive and to come back to. And I'm getting, so I'm learning to get things that are in my brain down on paper and to organize and think thoughtfully about ideas more than I have in the past and be more deliberate about that. Um, And then I'm also learning guitar. So that's a journey too. Speaking about doing one thing a day, you know, for five or 10 minutes, turns out guitar works really well. If you spend five or 10 minutes, if you spend three hours once a month, it doesn't work. And so, yeah, the daily practice of learning and growth, that is, um, that's very much a part of my days right now too. Dave, it's, it's so inspiring to see that you practice what you preach. Like truly, you, you constantly evolving and changing your habits to help yourself and what you do and, and help others, which I know is your, your purpose. Yeah. Dave, how can people reach out to you? How can they get involved with the Academy? How can they link on to the podcast? How can they just reach well, out to you in general? Uh, thank you for, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, the best thing is probably just to go over to coachingforleaders.com. And you already listen to podcasts since you listen to this one. Coaching for Leaders is a great place to start. And if you decide to engage more, you'll find everything at coachingforleaders.com. It's uh, pretty easy to find your way around. Dave, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge and helping us create a better future. You know, one, behavior, one behavior at a time. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Brad, this was fantastic. Thanks so much for your curiosity and asking wonderful questions. I had a blast. Thanks, Dave. Bye for now. The key takeaways for me from this episode was Dave's process for helping leaders develop new behaviors and move towards the future they want. Steps were, create a blueprint for the future you want. Choose one behavior to focus on now. Commit to an action, no matter how small, and practicing that behavior. This is such a simple yet amazing approach. Blueprint gives you the vision for the future and allows a person to incrementally focus on improving behaviors towards achieving this. The right behavior now can be chosen and then practiced for a period of time until it becomes natural, a new habit. The commitment to action and coaching Dave provides through his academy establishes the support needed to help his academy members through this journey. Dave is truly helping people and organizations improve and create a better future. Thanks again, Dave. Bye for now.